Welcome to Dear Dio, your resource for honest advice and real authenticity for your journey from medical school to residency. I'm your host, Michael Garrison. I'm an incoming PGY1 neurology resident. And for this episode of The Human Behind the White Coat, I sat down with Dr. Blake Boletko, MD. I was especially excited for this conversation because Dr. Boletko is a program director at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And he's honestly just such a fantastic human. We talked about what residency committees are likely turning to as step one and level one have gone to pass fail. We obviously had to talk about neurology too. I mean, how could we not? And then we talked about imposter syndrome, residency tips, interview season from a program director perspective. I hope that you all enjoy this lovely conversation with this lovely human being And make sure to follow this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Make sure to leave a five-star rating and review. And go ahead and follow me on Instagram at dear.do.pod. But first... All right, so this portion of the Dear Do podcast is what I like to call the human behind the white coat and serves as a reminder that all of us in medicine have our own unique journey. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Boletko, MD. So Dr. Boletko received his medical degree from Northeast Ohio Medical University and practices as a vascular neurologist as well as neurology residency program director at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in Cleveland, Ohio. It's an honor to have you here with me today. And if it's all right with you, I'd like to just dive right in. I know I briefly mentioned your background, but do you mind telling us a little bit more about your personal journey to medicine and more specifically to neurology? Of course. Thanks for having me. And I'm obviously excited to be here and chat with you. Um, my journey started off whenever, and, and some people probably have heard this story, but it started off whenever I was a, a kid. Um, I was one of the weird ones where um, I'm the first person in my family to become a, a physician, um, but my mom is a nurse and my mom worked for a private practice neurologist growing up. And so he kind of became a mentor to me. Uh, I spent some time in the office uh, during off hours or later hours where I would just go into an exam room and I would play with, you know, the old uh, ancient kind of brain models where you could take them apart and see the inside and the spines that used to hang uh, in, in the offices. And so I spent a lot of time in the office. And, you know, I think uh, it was in fourth grade that we were assigned a project to write about someone who inspires you or something that you might want to become whenever you get older and why. And so as all my friends were writing that they wanted to be baseball players or superheroes or astronauts, I actually wrote a paper about why I wanted to be a neurologist. And that was at age 10 years old. So I interviewed um, him and uh, we went through a a lot of what it meant to be a neurologist. And it just really struck me. And I was around it all the time. And my mom loved neurology. And so uh, it kind of became a a little bit of a joke of, oh, Blake wants to be a neurologist uh, and all of his friends wants you know, they want to do normal things with their lives. And so it kind of just, uh, you know, throughout middle school, throughout high school, um, I, I still took to the sciences quite a bit. And I started thinking more seriously about, well, what what does my life look like? What do I want to do? Uh, again, being around neurology so much through my mom, um, it was always kind of around the house. I, I went and did some house calls, you know, with my mom and, and the neurologist that she worked with. Um, I got to see people even in middle school and high school who were suffering from neurological disease. And so uh, it, it became more of a humanistic part of who I was pr- 
pretty early on. And so um, I, in eighth grade, decided to write to what was uh, then called NeoUCOM, which is the same as NeoMed now, different name. And uh, I wrote to them and I said, what do you look for in somebody who wants to get into your program, to get into your medical school? I'm, I'm about to embark on my high school journey. And I want to know that I'm doing everything possible to set myself up for potentially getting into medical school. So again, following along the uh, the planner and the, the nerdiness of who I was. And so they wrote back some generic response of, you know, be a good student and be a good person and et cetera, et cetera. And so, of course, my mom has saved all these things that I've done along the way, which is pretty cool to look back at now. But I applied to an accelerated BSMD program through, again, what was called NeoUCOM at the time. Uh, where, which essentially meant that as soon as I graduated high school, uh, I cut my senior trip. I don't know if high schoolers still do senior trips, but I cut my senior trip short and I started uh, college uh, during that summer right after I graduated high school. So I went all year round um, for two years. Um, and then the, the hope is that you do two years of your BS degree and then you would matriculate on and, and do your medical school after that. So it all went by a little bit quickly for me. And so I ended up taking a third year in college. I was living with uh, a bunch of my really good friends and we were having a good time in college. And so um, went through after three years and then went into Neomed. And uh, during Neomed, I said, I want to have an open mind. I, I want to keep my options open. I don't want to just continue to pigeonhole myself into neurology. I want to experience everything. And so someone gave me some pretty good advice at some of these rotations that you may or may not enjoy. Um, this will potentially be the last opportunity that you have to rotate through some of these uh, specialties of medicine or surgery. Um, and you may never get the opportunity to deliver a baby again. You may never get the opportunity to do some simple suturing again. And so I think I really took that to heart and I liked a lot of the things that I was doing. Um, but I came back to neurology and I'm sure that we're going to talk more about what I love about neurology and everything else. But I decided to go into neurology. I was fortunate enough to match um, here close to home. I'm from Northeast Ohio. So matched at the Cleveland Clinic and did my residency. And then I decided to do a vascular neurology fellowship um, after I came into residency saying, I want to be an outpatient general neurologist, just like my mentor. I turned into kind of the opposite of that. And so after I got done with fellowship, I made a quick getaway and I left Northeast Ohio. I worked within the Duke Health System for a little over a year. And then I came back and I have been here at the Cleveland Clinic since and now on a path of clinician educator, which you've already uh, stated during your introduction. So that's as quick as I can go through and give you a rundown of how I got to where I'm at right now. That was a great synopsis of your life up until this point. I really enjoyed that. I also really enjoyed the fact that you touched on, you know, being first generation. I remember we chatted a little bit about that before. Um, I'm also first generation, and I think that it can be it can be kind of hard for people like us to kind of skate our way into the field um, without that kind of mentorship or anything like that from parents or pushing by parents. You know, I never had. My mom never pushed me to be a doctor. I just did this on my own accord. And then that early mentorship must must have meant the world to you. Um, I think that that's an amazing opportunity and you just really took full advantage of it. That's amazing. And, you know, that gunner kind of planner mindset that you've had since like such an early age fits the archetype of neurologist to a T. Um, I, can I can resonate with that for sure. And I really like the fact that you 
touched on, you know, having an open mind during during your third year and fourth year clerkships. I know as as someone like myself who is also very much like I'm doing neurology since first year of med school, I was like, this is probably what I'm going to do. It was very easy, I think, during third year to be like, oh, I don't need to I don't need to learn that much about that, you know, but kind of reframing and changing your mindset and being like, you know what, Um, this is the last time that I'm going to be able to suture someone's hand in the emergency room. I'm going to do it. Um, So like last month, I was on my last rotation ever. I was on emergency medicine and I was with another student. He was going into family medicine. He was going to be doing emergency medicine rotations. I'm not. Um, like it's not part of the neurology curriculum. And so this guy came in and he had his, his hand was almost like off, like his fingers were almost completely chopped off by a skill saw. And the preceptor was like, do you want to do it? I'm like, this is literally the last chance that I'll ever get to do something like this. So yes, yes, I'm going to do this. Um, and it was amazing. 17 stitches. It was nuts. Um, but anyway, back to this, this interview, if you could do it all over again, you know, that whole spiel that you just gave, is there anything about your journey that you would have changed if you could? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, you know, a question that you get asked from time to time. And I do, I do want to specify, you know, as far as uh, I was a, obviously a planner, that's easy to, to tell, but I was also a, a back rower. I was not the person in the, the front uh, row with my hand up all the time. I kind of, uh, as much as it doesn't seem like I was behind the scenes and under the radar, I very much wanted to be like that. I, I never wanted to be one of those people who was always in everybody's faces. I think that there's a way to go about finding that right mentorship and being a go-getter without trampling everything and everybody in your way. And I think that that's really important. Um, whenever I think back and, and someone asks, would I do anything differently? I think it's a little bit tough because obviously I, I'm able to live my childhood dream come true right now. And so it's hard to look back and say, you know, would I change a bunch of things? I don't think that I probably would. One thing that I envied um, about my friends and sometimes my friends envied about me, and I don't know if it's something I would change, but, you know, it was kind of nice to see my friends change their mind and have different interests and, uh, you know, year to year want to do something different with their life, want to explore different things. I think they were always envious that I always knew what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I had a very good targeted goal. But I think it also put a lot of pressure on myself um, and, and no one put the pressure on me. Again, I didn't have, you know, parents breathing down my neck about, you know, you need to follow in, in our footsteps. You need to do this. You need to do that. Uh, it was very open, whatever you want to do. But I held myself to such a high standard and, and I, I was laser focused from so young that I, I always envied some of my friends who were able to change their minds and able to switch direction and be able to explore maybe some things that. I didn't explore as much. Maybe I didn't take some of my high school classes as seriously as I should have. Same with college uh, and some of the humanities and some of the business classes. I think if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have probably tried to take a little bit more of a holistic approach to my education, especially pre-med, because I think it just would have uh, helped me have a broader sense of what I was going into. And, And I do a lot of that now, which is probably why I'm wishing I would have done a little bit more of it before. But again, would I change what I did? Probably not. I wanted to get to where I was at as fast as possible, and I accomplished that mission. But if I could go back and kind of stop and smell the roses a little bit and try to explore some things that were a little bit outside of what my 
career path was, I think that that would have potentially made me feel a little bit more holistic and have a better understanding of things outside of where my my eyes were tunneled vision since I was a young kid. I think that so many people can relate to that. And it's so hard because I think that I can also relate to that. Did I almost fail studies of the world at University of Florida? Yeah. Yeah, I almost did. I missed an entire exam because I just forgot about it because I was careless about things that didn't have to do with pre-med. And I think it's easy to be like, yeah, I should have taken that more seriously. But at the same time, I was 19 years old. There's very little that 19-year-old me could have done to change my outlook on life at that point. I was just kind of uh, like maybe emotionally immature. I had tunnel vision. I wasn't able to see different perspectives. So it's it's easy to, to say stuff like that. And uh, I can totally relate. I wish that I would have stopped a little bit and smelled the roses and maybe told myself, you know, get it together. There's other things out there, you know? I think, you know, it's it's always one of those hindsight is twenty twenty questions. And it's always, I hope that people can look back and pick and choose a couple different things that they would do a little bit differently. I don't think that anybody thinks that they've lived their life perfectly. I think it's different of would you have done a few things differently versus do you regret anything? And I think definitely you and I share the same. Uh, we were young and going through college again. My my mind was so laser focused on just pay attention to everything you need to get to get through medical school. And then it was get through medical school. And then it was get through residency. And uh, I think sometimes just stopping and enjoying what's happening around you and trying to broaden yourself as much as possible during those really, really formative years of your life, I think are really important. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I got really good advice from my school when I first started. Um, we had a very amazing mindfulness uh, counselor come in. He gave us a whole lecture on mindfulness, which seems like a waste of time if you have that laser focus of, okay, I just need to get through med school. Why am I having this lecture on mindfulness? But honestly, that lecture was very formative for me because it made me stop and say, you know, I'm always waiting for the next thing. I'm always waiting. Okay, after this exam, I'm going to feel better. After I match, I'm going to feel better. After this, I'm going to I'm going to feel better. There's no time like right now to feel better and to stop and be like, you know what? I I really wanted this. This is what I wanted right now. You know, when I was in high school, I dreamed of being a medical student. I'm a medical student right now. That's amazing. I should I should be proud of myself. I should pat myself on the back right now and not be thinking about, oh my gosh, I need to pass boards. I need to match, blah, 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 blah. Like I'm grateful for where I am right now. And now that I'm matched, I find myself being like, okay, I just got to get through intern year. I got to, you know, and then I'll get to neurology. And I have to keep reeling myself back and be like, no, Michael, this is this is what you wanted. This is what we've been working so hard for. So having that mindfulness, having that that ability to just stop yourself, reel yourself back in and just breathe in this moment is huge. And I've been working on that a lot. Anything you want to add to that? Well said. Thank you. Thank you. So back to neurology. Neurology used to be regarded as a field with abundant diagnoses, but rarely any meaningful interventions. I remember when I told my neurosurgery preceptor I wanted to pursue neurology, he told me I would be diagnosing patients all day, but never actually do anything for them. And this could not be further from reality. This narrative has changed dramatically over the past decade with innovations like ocrelizumab for MS, as well as TNK and very advanced thrombectomy techniques for stroke. 
It's obvious to me, at least, that neurology is one of the fastest growing and changing specialties that's out there. If you don't mind uh, me asking, what are your favorite things about neurology right now? And what are you most excited about for the future of neurology? How long do we have to record? Uh, I feel like I could <laughs> go on for quite some time. I, I think if you talk to somebody who loves neurology, I think that they really love neurology. And so I think all of us share in that uh, feeling of just sense of just this love for neurology. And so we could probably talk for a long time. I'll, I'll try to keep it short and sweet. You know, one of the things looking into why I wanted to do neurology, aside from my background and my, you know, support from my mom and my mentors early on, one thing that, again, I heard the same thing a decade and a half ago uh, going into neurology was, you know, you're just going to diagnose and sometimes you can't even do that and you're going to scratch your head and you're going to have to say, I don't know a lot. And so there are a couple points that I, I think I can highlight here. One Let's just keep it there at base level. If people are still thinking, what do you do as a neurologist if you're just sitting around, you know, this, this age old adage of people with their bow ties on sitting back in a leather recliner, just thinking and not actually doing anything for the patients. One, I think that there's uh, beauty in being a, a diagnostician and being able to really come up with an answer that maybe someone hasn't had for a very, very long time. I think providing at least uh, thoughts about what might be happening to a lot of these people that have been given unknowns, I think is really powerful. The other thing is, I, th I think you have to be comfortable saying, I don't know. And I don't think that saying, I don't know, is a sign of weakness or a sign of or lack of intelligence. I think that sometimes in medicine, we have to appreciate the complexity of medicine and especially neurology. And I think being able to tell a patient you don't know, but you're going to keep trying to figure it out. You're going to keep trying to work with them. Not that there's nothing more that you can do, but that you don't know where you're at with things right now. And that could be some things, you know, one of the reasons I like stroke and vascular neurology is uh, I did find myself not wanting to say, I don't know all the time. And so uh, stroke, I can at least get an MRI for the most part and tell people, have you had a stroke? Have you not had a stroke? Uh, I think that there's a little bit of comfort for myself in that. But then, well, why? Why did I have this stroke? Why is this happening to me? Why, when I have no vascular risk factors and I'm young, why did this happen? And oftentimes, we're still stuck with, I don't know, but we're going to continue to try to figure this out. We're going to continue to work on things. I think that that's really powerful. So if we just keep it there and we say that nothing has changed, I think that there's still a lot of power in what a neurologist does. I think that patients really look up to... Uh, uh, the conversations that they have. And I think that we spend a lot of time with our patients. And I think that that's becoming harder and harder in a lot of specialties these days to be able to sit down and talk to your patients and do a good full exam. I've, I can't tell you how many times I do my cursory neuro exam in, in stroke clinic and people say, you've checked more on me today than anybody has in the last three years with the same complaints. You know, we had a resident one time where someone kept complaining about some pain in their in their feet and nobody took their sock off to find that there was a diabetic ulcer there until one of our residents said, I'm going to do a neuro exam. And this patient had been dealing with this for how long? So I think it's really important to appreciate saying, I don't know, to being able to diagnose people with some complex diseases. But again, this is all if we say that neurology has not made it any further than that. And that's clearly not the case. You highlighted a couple of things. Um, and one of the reasons that I think a lot of us like going into neurology is that we're so excited for what the next 50 years of neurology looks like, right? You could probably combine psychiatry in there too, and a lot of other 
uh, fields, we're making a lot of advances in medicine and surgery uh, as a whole. And it's really exciting to be a part of it. And so I, I would say that one of the most powerful things for me being a vascular neurologist is having somebody come into the emergency department severely disabled and being able to offer either some sort of TPA, whether people are using tenecteplase or altaplase or providing a thrombectomy that five to 10 years ago, we wouldn't been doing. And then instead of watching this person be severely disabled for the rest of their lives in some sort of skilled nursing facility, that now you get to see them walk out of the hospital. There's sometimes where this happens, as you may or may not have seen. If, if you haven't yet, I hope that you will at some point. This almost happens before your eyes. So having a completely aphasic patient uh, within an hour after you administer some sort of acute stroke treatment, being able to have a full conversation with you and, and just seeing that transition, that's pretty powerful. If that's not powerful for anybody, whether you love neurology or not, um, I don't know if, if medicine is, is the right place for you. But so it, it's been absolutely amazing to watch the field advance over the last even decade. I'm excited for what's to come. And I'll, I'll put one more thing and sorry, I know I'm rambling, but one more thing that I love about neurology and medicine in general is I, I, I find it hard to find another profession that you can have so many different personalities all go into the same profession and be extremely successful. So if you think about uh, a pathologist from a radiologist, from a general surgeon to an orthopedic to a neurologist, we are all very different people, but we are all very good at what we do. And I think that the same is true for neurology. So neurology now has over 30 subspecialties and uh, a neuromuscular neurologist is going to be very different than a vascular, very different than a neuroimmunologist. And I think it's so cool that we all share this love for what we do in neurology, yet there are so many different personalities within neurology as a field by itself. And I know that there are other fields of medicine that probably feel very similarly, but I think it's so cool to see how many different types of personality make it to neurology and all do something a little bit different to contribute to the field of neurology. And the fact that we all work together so well, I think it's pretty cool and pretty powerful. And it's one of the things that I love most about what I do day in and day out. Yeah, I I have to agree with everything that you said. You know, when when you were talking about going from, you know, giving TNK or TPA to a patient and watching them kind of come back to themselves right in front of your eyes or, you know, I remember sending someone in for a thrombectomy and then going in and checking on them afterwards and they were completely back to their normal self. And that it's almost like magic, especially when you're like a third-year medical student or a fourth-year medical student you're just, it's awe striking. It's whimsical. You're, you're in this kind of world where, wow, we just really fixed somebody. They are going to walk out of here. They're going to go on and, and live a normal life. Like this never even happened, maybe. Um, obviously lifestyle changes, but um, besides the point. And I always tell this to anybody that's thinking about going into neurology is the, the subspecialties thing, you know, People ask me, what's the archetype of neurology? Oh, you guys are just all quirky, whimsical, kind of like planner weirdos. And I'm like, uh, to, to a certain extent. But also the fact that there are 30 subspecialties, I like to think of neurology as almost like its own internal medicine. When you think of people going into internal medicine, you know, you've got cardiology personality types are very different from nephrology personality types. And that's kind of how I like to explain it. Um, so, you know, neuroimmunologists are going to be 
a completely different breed from neurointensivists. Um, and it's funny because I'm interested in both of those fields. And so I don't know where I fall on this spectrum, but um, we'll find out, I guess. I couldn't agree more. And just to comment, it doesn't get any less awestrucking as, as you become more senior. So that feeling that you have as a medical student, I can tell you still to this day, whenever I see this happen with patients, it's not as surprising to me, but it, it, it doesn't it doesn't dilute what happens and it doesn't dilute the fact that it's it's one of the most, you know, kind of powerful things that that I've ever experienced is watching somebody again go from completely disabled to nearly back to their baseline uh, within a very short period of time and, and know that you had something to potentially do with that. So it doesn't get any any less inspiring as you get older. So I, I want everybody out there to know that whatever you're doing, if you see something that's really cool on, on a rotation, if you see something really cool shadowing, it doesn't have to get less cool just because you do it more. That's all perspective. And it's it's how much you want to put into really taking that moment for everything that it is. And we talked a little bit earlier about really being in the moment. And as long as you're doing that with your patients, uh, it should be this special every single time it happens. Yeah. And just to add to that, I remember when I was thinking about going into neurology, a lot of people told me, well, it's just really sad. And I don't agree with that at all. Sure, it's sad when somebody doesn't meet the window for a TPA or TNK or thrombectomy. It's really sad. Um, but to balance that out, you have the balance of the ones that do make it and do get close to their baseline or do get to walk out of the hospital. And then it, it almost propels you, it, not almost, it totally does propel you to make these further advancements. You know, a lot of big institutions are employing mobile stroke units. Those units are going to be able to hopefully get more people in the window. We need better patient education so that patients can know, hey, these are the signs of the stroke and to come into the hospital because I can't tell you how many times on my emergency medicine rotation because I was in such a rural environment, nobody knew what the signs of, of a stroke was. And the entire month, I think I saw six strokes but none of them met the window. None of them were able to. And so, yeah, that part was sad, um, but that just goes to show that that community can employ better, better patient education, et cetera. I think a lot of specialties of medicine and again, even surgery, you know, can say that we're all in, in somewhat of a bad news business sometimes. Um, even very, very straightforward specialties that may not deal with end of life care as much as what we might um, in the neurology world can still say that a lot of what they do can be really sad. I think that equally uh, uplifting. And also, I think it, it's really powerful that, you know, you can empathize with patients, you can sympathize with patients, and you can be there for them when they're going through something that might not be the best news, or if an outcome doesn't go exactly as you were hoping. I think that it's still really powerful to know that if neurologists are going into this, knowing that there are going to be really tough conversations, you're going to deal with a lot of bad news and you're well equipped to be able to be by a patient and their family's side whenever these happen. You know, that's somebody that I or I would want for myself or a family member to be there, you know, holding our hands as we go through that process, not somebody who didn't know that they were signing up for potentially some not so great outcomes. So I think it is an important part to say, if you're coming into neurology, thinking that everything is going to be happy and every patient that you have is going to respond well to, to connect a place. I mean, I can 
tell you several times that I've given tenecteplase because it was a recommendation that I thought was best for the patient at the time. They were severely disabled. We did everything right, standard of care. And then they ended up having, you know, a, a fatal or severely disabling intracranial bleed because of a medication that I gave. And so it does go both ways. And I think that we would be uh, not doing justice, just talk about everything in, in happy light. But I think also, you know, you being there at the bedside equally, whether you have a good outcome or a bad outcome and being with the family and being with that patient as they go through whatever is going to happen to them throughout their disease course, I think that that's the most important part. Yeah. And something that, that wasn't apparent to me as a medical student was how often neurological symptoms come up as the first presenting sign of so many other problems. Um, so you kind of are a gatekeeper in a way to having these these presentations come in in the emergency room. And it does look like a neurological condition, and it very well might be, but it's actually metastatic disease from a lung tumor that this person had no idea that they even had. And so that that falls on you a little bit as being like, okay, this is why now I'm the one who has to kind of give this this bad news bears to this this patient. But that that is a, a great point. You know, it's not all sunshines and rainbows. And that goes without any point of medicine, really. So as a program director, you've had the opportunity to watch residents grow and shine as budding neurologists in your program. And I'm curious what kind of qualities and characteristics you look for in medical students that might predict their future success in residency. So this is a good one. And uh, th this has just been my first year as program director, but I've been an APD now for several years and I've always really, really appreciated medical education. And so I, I guess two things that you asked, one is what type of qualities and characteristics do we look out for in medical students? And then also, are there some that will help predict future successes? And I think that, you know, we, we all look for someone who's going to be really hardworking, someone who's going to be motivated and dedicated, someone that has a good balance within themselves. You know, whenever we get to work with medical students, say on a rotation, it's very different than ever whenever we get to interview and try to meet somebody during an application process for only several minutes or within a day. And so I think that, you know, we look for maybe slightly different things in those two realms. Whenever we're rotating with somebody and we get the experience to work with them and have them work with us and we get to talk to them and sit down and we're not crunched by time. I think that the, the fit of does this person fit in with our group of people, I think is really, really important. So we can sit here and talk about, you know, what are your, you know, test scores? What are your clerkship grades? What are your comments saying? But if you're working with us, really what we want to know is what is, what is your work ethic? Are you here to be a part of the team and to try to fit in? And do you get along with the, the other residents and faculty? Are you hardworking? Do you care about your patients? These things uh, very, very, very much outshine all of the things that we look for on a paper application whenever we actually have time to, to get to work with you all um, and get to know you as people. I think whenever we're reviewing applications and we're trying to figure out who would be a good fit for our residency and what do we look for in that short period of time, you know, uh, it's been really nice over the last couple of years to see everyone transition into this holistic review of applications and a holistic review of people really is what it is. So you are not your application, right? But that's what we have to get to know you based off of. So yes, are your, you know, standardized test scores important to some degree? Yes. 
do will they make or break whether or not you have an opportunity potentially depending on the program you know i know that step one has gone away you probably have talked a lot about comlex usmle which one should you do how do they correlate you know and every program does something a little bit differently so i don't want to get too much into the weeds about it but do standardized tests matter to some degree i would say yes do your clerkships matter to some degree Yes, but it's also the comments and what people are saying about your work ethic and us trying to get a feel for who you are. So now, do your letters of recommendation matter more than maybe what they have in the past? I would say yes. Do, does your personal statement matter more than maybe what it did in the past? I would say yes. Do your meaningful experiences and the things that you get to write that are narratives of yourself matter more than what they've mattered in the past? Well, I would say yes, because they haven't existed in the past, right? So. There are a lot of things, your volunteer experiences, everything that you put into your application, this is basically you trying to say, this is who I am. So I would even argue that the hobbies section is one of the first sections that I really focus in on to try to get a feel for who is this person, not just who is this student on paper, what have they accomplished from a professional standpoint, but who are they? You know, who, who are you? Uh, what differentiates you apart from somebody else? And do you fit the type of person that we look for within our own program. And every program is going to be a little bit different for what they're looking for. So I think that there are some characteristics that probably everybody looks for. You know, are you a, a decent human being? Do you show compassion? Uh, have you had some red flags? Uh, have you had some stumbles along the way? And if you have, can you explain why and what you've done to better yourself and further yourself from those kind of roadblocks? Um, and then can we get a feel for who you are as a person through your application, I think is really important. And how have you performed during your preclinical years and your clinical years? It gives us a sense of how are you then going to be able to perform during a very busy residency program? So I would say that those are some of the, the basics, the nuts and the bolts of what we look for. And then really, whenever it comes time to that interview day or that away rotation that you're doing, it's just, do you fit in? Do we know who you are? Do we? Do you like who we are? Uh, you know, you have to spend a decent amount of time with these people, right? At least three years if you're in an advanced program, and four years for most categoricals, and then a fellowship potentially after, and then maybe staying there as staff forever. And so, you really have to find your tribe, right? You have to find your people, and I think it's really important both ways. It's not just us looking for the best candidate; it's looking for that meshing of two people, right? It's meshing of a program and applicants. And uh, I think that the culture of what you're looking for as an applicant and the culture of what you're providing as a program, you almost match each other in, in many ways. And I think that that's really important to let everybody know that now as students, you have more say in where you're going and what's happening than you probably have ever had before. And a lot of what we do as programs are try to figure out who thinks that they would fit in with us, because that's ultimately going to be someone that's going to succeed if they feel like they're in a program that uh, is like family to them. That's that's ultimately what we want. I think that was a great outline. And they've done so many studies that show that your productivity increases when you have friends at work, when you feel like maybe you have a best friend at work. Um, so feeling like you you do fit in and have people that you can rely on will not only make you a better physician, but it'll make you happier as well. And when you're happier, you produce more, you, you are less likely to make mistakes, et cetera. And you know, I just want to touch on a couple of the things that you that you mentioned. So you mentioned how important an audition rotation is, you know, to see if you are a good fit and all of that. 
And not once did you mention how smart someone is perceived to be when they're on the audition rotation. You're not looking for, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not looking for somebody who's coming in knowing everything. You're looking for personality. 100%. I mean, the purpose of your neurology residency is to learn neurology. So we are not expecting somebody to come in uh, during an AI and prove to us that they already know everything about neurology. If that's the case, they don't need a residency. So you're exactly right. And coming in and acting like you know everything can be kind of off-putting from a personality standpoint. You know, going in and just feeling that kind of passion for neurology is all that you really need. And being there for the other people in working as a team, even though you barely know these people, is probably the best thing that you can do. And I think that a lot of people get wrapped up in AIs and auditions and sub-internships thinking, oh my gosh, I need to know everything. I need to, and I mean, I kind of fell into this too for my first one, thinking, oh my gosh, I need to go back through all of the neurology Anki and know neuroanatomy again. I didn't need to know any of that. I just needed to come in with a smile on my face and be willing to work hard for the entire day. Yeah. And I I think uh, just to comment quickly on a couple other points there, you're going to be working, uh, you had mentioned team approach. I mean, we work more now in multidisciplinary teams to take care of patients than we ever have in the past. And so, you know, sometimes we'll even ask our pharmacists, uh, our APPs, uh, rotators, you know, what did you think of this person? You know, how did they mesh with all of you? Did they just put their best foot forward in front of neurology minded people just to, to show that they were there and working hard? Or were they really genuine in w- how they were working with the team? And, and really, who were they trying to impress? Or were they just there to do the best that they could for everybody? And that role might change. It changes for all of us. It changes as a staff, it changes as a resident, it changes as a student you might have to take on a different role every single day, depending on what the team needs from you and depending on what the service is like at that time. The only other thing that I would say is, you know, I I remember as a third year student, that's probably the most time that I ever had with a patient. And I always remind the third year students and even AIs uh, that this is the time that you will have the most amount of time with the patients one-on-one. There will probably not be a better time in your life that you just get to go and spend time with the patient. You get to talk to them. You get to hear who they are. You get to get their story. And so oftentimes we will get information from the students that we don't get from the patients about something in their history, just because they were able to go and just sit with the patient and have the time with the patient to elicit some of this very vulnerable information that maybe the patient was withholding because they felt like they didn't have enough time to get it all out or it wasn't the right opportunity, it wasn't the right timing. But if you have somebody that really goes and spends time with patients and gets away from the monotony of our computer documentation and everything else, um, I think that students are not just students to sit there in the corner and answer some questions and try to soak in information. I think that there's a very active role for students. And I think that the more you take advantage of that third year, that fourth year, uh, whatever year you, you are doing from a clinical standpoint, you can make a huge impact on the patient. And oftentimes we have patients that relate more sometimes to our students than they do to the rest of our team because the students are spending the most time with them. And I think that it could be really empowering And so I would never diminish the role of the student on a multidisciplinary team. Okay. So we were just talking about the qualities and characteristics that, you know, you should have when you're applying for residency, Um, you know, 
things that you maybe think that you need to have, like all of the knowledge that you don't necessarily need to have in order to go on audition rotations and such like that. Um, And medical school is obviously super challenging between the coursework, the board exams, obtaining research, et cetera. I'm sure a lot of medical students are wondering if you have any advice for them, especially students still in their first or second year who are interested in pursuing neurology. I would say try to obtain that mentorship or try to obtain some form of somebody that can introduce you to what clinical neurology looks like. I know that neurophobia exists um, and it's very prominent, especially in the preclinical years. And, And I think trying to wrap your head around the complexity of what you're learning can sometimes be really difficult, especially if it's not done well with some clinical correlation. And then you learn all this stuff early on, and then you don't really have time to put it together with something clinical really until later on. And so I think that there's this big lull in between when you're learning about neurology and neuroanatomy to whenever you actually get to see why it all matters sometimes. And so I think that if you have an early spark, if you have some energy to where you say, wow, this is pretty interesting. I like this. Ask how you can find out more about it. So whether that's a shadowing experience early on, whether that's just sitting down and talking to a neurologist for a little while, because I guarantee you that they're probably passionate about what they're doing. I I think that those are the important things that you can do during your, you know, first and second years. Uh, that can be really, really helpful in bridging that gap between when you're learning about some of this to when you actually get to apply it to clinical scenarios. Um, And then, you know, start to investigate a little bit on your own, listen to podcasts like this, uh, try to go out and explore a little bit about the field as a whole outside of just what you're learning about from, you know, a preclinical work standpoint. Definitely. I think my mentorship that I obtained along the way made all of the difference mentorship in and out of neurology specifically. I had a great neurology mentor who showed me the ropes, told me, you know, what I need to get done. All of the, he basically just exposed me to neurology in general, showed me how amazing it is, how fun it is. And then I had a separate mentor who was just in the year above me, who told me, you know, all the ins and outs of residency applications. These are what sub eyes are versus an AI. And That was really inspiring for me. And then also having a mentor who's not in neurology, who can just kind of serve as a a person who who works with students often, who knows the ins and outs of, of what makes a good student, bounce ideas off of. Somebody who's a good writer is amazing. That way you can send them your personal statement, get feedback on it, and just having professional kind of discourse about your future with somebody who's not necessarily in that field, I, th- I found was very important to me. So I 100% endorse everything that you, you just said. And going off of that, for incoming neurology residents like myself or any kind of resident, do you have any advice for first or second year residents who are embarking on their journey through residency? Yes. I'll start with uh, one solid piece of advice. You don't have to know everything before you start. So it's a process. It is uh, something that will come with time. You are going into a residency to learn, not to already know. And so I think it's really important to remember that, you know, coming in as a new resident, there are some base expectations that we're hoping for. One, that you know how to gather information. Two, that you can write a note. 
Three, that you can present the information that you've gathered. Four, uh, I think that you are working well in a group setting. You are a team player. You are hardworking. And then I would say five is that you learn how to become efficient. I think that this one might be the most important only because you are going into an environment that you will likely be in for the next several years, whether that's a new medical record system, whether that's just finding your way around the hospital, whether that's learning how to call a consult. At every place that you go, learning how to be efficient as soon as possible is going to make all of these other things a lot easier. If you learn efficiency, it also allows you some additional time to read about your patients while you're taking care of them. It allows you to spend more time with patients. And so I think that those are kind of my my five bare minimums that you should really focus on as you make this transition. And it's going to set you up a lot for success moving forward if you can focus on some of those. There are some other things that we'll chat about probably in a, a couple of minutes, but I, I would say don't overly concern yourself with knowing all the information before you start. You are still in an educational environment, at least you should be. And so your job is to learn while you're training to, to learn about neurology and learn about medicine during your first year. So your first year, while you're learning about medicine, this is the only opportunity that you have to really sink in and learn everything that you can and create that base foundation for medicine moving forward. Because as a neurologist, you're going to be taking care of, as we talked about earlier, a lot of patients with comorbid diseases. And maybe what you're seeing the patient for is just a secondary manifestation of their systemic disease. And if you never took the time to learn about that, you're going to be a step behind. So sink yourself into medicine. You have your whole life to learn about neurology. You don't have to know everything right now and focus on efficiency. That is advice that I've I've gotten a couple of times thus far, and you said it in a very systematic way, which I enjoyed. But the the first thing being, you know, you don't need to know everything. It's taking everything in me not to do my internal medicine Anki cards again. <laughs> like, it's it's a really hard thing for me because I I do enjoy learning. I do and I I hate feeling like I'm not doing enough, and that that might be my own kind of like flaw, if you will. But yeah, just trying to relax. I've been trying to do a lot of a lot of meditation, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of yoga, and so that's how I'm trying to take a step back and not feel like I have to know everything. But then also you mentioned efficiency. And that is something that I've gotten time and time again from people in neurology and out of neurology saying, you know, get your smart phrases set up or your dot phrases set up as soon as you can. That way you're not spending all of your time writing your notes. You're spending your time with your patients and you're spending your time with your patients learning. Uh, That hands-on learning that you're doing with the patient in front of you is much more valuable than the learning that you're going to get at home on the couch with your textbook. So I, I 100% echo that. And I mean, I'm not there yet, but I'm trying to gather as much as I can about it. So we'll see how that goes once I'm there. But uh, And then also a big thing for me, which played into the efficiency thing, and I'm a creature of habit. I have to do kind of the same things every day. I'm kind of a weirdo. But going to a program that I knew the city was very important to me somewhere, especially I I matched at University of Florida and I actually worked there for a year and a half before med school. And so when I went on my audition rotation, I already knew where everything was. I knew where all of the 
gowns where I knew where the LP kits were. I, I, oh, they needed something taken to the other tower. I know the underground tunnel system, like the back of my hand. And so there wasn't that learning curve. I could just go ahead and, and go do what I needed to do. So that added to the efficiency. And I'm, I'm glad that, uh, I mean, I love your program too, Dr. Blyko. It, it was amazing, but I'm happy that I ended up where I'm where I'm at. I think you commented on something and, you know, I just came back from the AAN and uh, the, the annual meeting and, you know, you see people that you interview with, you get to make a lot of connections. Neurology is a very small community. So ultimately what we want is we want for people to be happy with where they're going, where they're training. We're all going to be colleagues. It's just a matter of time. And so we all want, and I think I can speak broadly for all of us in, in program leadership is that we want people to be happy. So just because somebody doesn't end up in our program, we can't take everybody that we interview, even though, you know, some years it feels like we just want to take everybody. Ultimately, we just want everybody to be happy. We want to support each other. We want this to be a very supportive environment, a supportive specialty. I hope that you didn't get the sense of going into neurology from your interviews that it was uh, a malignant field to go into and that everybody was going to be mean and nasty. And so if you see people, if you come across people that you interview with, even if you don't end up at that program, uh, chances are they're still wondering, how are you doing? What's going on? Tell me more about your experience. How is your residency going? I think even us getting the chat, yes, you're not making the venture to Cleveland, but that's okay. I mean, I think it's great. We still made a connection. We're going to be colleagues for the rest of our lives. I think that it's really unique. And I, I think we all want what's best for each individual. And that might look very different for different individuals. So I think it's important to know that whenever you're making these connections, with people during the interview process, they can still be very sincere and genuine connections that you make. And you don't have to end up together for a, a training period. You can still connect in many, many other ways and you can still support each other. You can still have that relationship. So don't worry if you made a good connection with somebody and you didn't match in their program or you even got along with some residents that you didn't AI with. It's not like you can never talk to them again. You should talk to them. You should keep in touch. I think the more people that you can meet and the more connections that you can have, the better. And we all want what's best for each other. Um, so I promise you that if you have this feeling of, wow, I didn't go there, I, I can't talk to them anymore, I feel bad, just dismiss that because it's not true. It's not how we feel. We all want what's best for everybody. And, and I hope everybody can remember that as we go through this process year and year again. Yeah, neurology is such a small world, too. So just remembering that, you know, everybody is your colleague. I, I remember after the match, so many of the so many of the residents that I did AIs with ended up following me on Instagram, being like, where did you end up? Oh, my gosh. Um, sad that they that I didn't end up with them. But also happy for me. And so keeping those kinds of connections. And then something that I think that a lot of people struggle with going into residency is imposter syndrome. And I think that everybody faces it to a different extent. But have you ever experienced any of these feelings of imposter syndrome? And if so, how did you manage? Yes, I think we all do along different journeys of, of where we're at. I can remember whenever I first came and did my training at the Cleveland Clinic. I mean, my school, most of the one, we didn't have a neurology clerkship. So already I feel like I'm two steps behind, maybe five steps behind everybody. Two, any sort of training experience that I had was mostly through community-based hospitals. 
And then here I was coming to the Cleveland Clinic, which is the biggest hospital system I've ever walked inside. It took me, I think, six months to figure out where I was going on consults during my first year. And so as soon as I came in, I said, wow, all of these other people that I'm coming into residency with, they come from big academic medical schools. I did not. They've been in these academic training environments. They've been through neurology clerkships. So right off the bat, I felt an imposter syndrome. And again, this is a term that has been more widely accepted of a recent. So I don't think that it was recognized. I don't think that it was very well known to say, hey, Blake, maybe this is some imposter syndrome. Maybe you should remind yourself that you were chosen. You know, you do belong because you were chosen to be here. There's a reason why you are here at this stage and to fully embrace it. But yes, so I felt it then, you know, coming then into fellowship, you wonder, you know, is this right for me? I thought I wanted to be a community outpatient neurologist. Am I really somebody who is ready to be a vascular academic neurologist? Maybe, maybe not. And then as even most recently as a new program director. So the program director of our program, Marianne Mays, she was here for 17 years. She was a mentor to so many of us. And now thinking that I am coming in to fill these shoes of this giant in the, in the program director world who has changed so many lives, you know, am, am I the right person to be here? Is Am I who the residents want to be in this position? How am I going to ever live up to the things that she did for all of us? And I think that there's some power in that. It, it makes me really think about what's important to me and how she helped along the way. But it, it does give you an imposter syndrome of, am I do I belong here? Is this where I'm supposed to be? Is this something that I can handle? And so I think that we all experience it. It's It should not be something that is not talked about. It should not be something that's felt like it's a weakness or that it's something that you have to handle on your own. I think that even acknowledging that it's there, it's a feeling that you have and talking about it, you're probably going to realize that there are a lot of other people who feel very, very similar to you. And leaning back on those mentors that you've created over time. And mentors don't have to be just in medicine. Uh, we talked about they don't have to be just in neurology. They don't even have to be in medicine. So if you've met some people that you hold dear to you throughout your life, I think the first step is saying, I'm feeling this way. Don't know how to handle it exactly. Do you have any thoughts? And, and they can usually coach you through or mentor you through some of this. And then I think it's just continuing to push forward continuing to have some some good self-affirmations. I think a lot of the times whenever you have imposter syndrome, uh, you tend to not have many affirmations about yourself in, in those periods. And I think it's really important to say, wow, I haven't given myself any affirmation in quite some time. Maybe it's time to give myself a couple affirmations here and there and build yourself up a little bit to, to be able to take on whatever role that might look like. And so you're going to experience this. You will all experience this, and you'll probably experience this multiple times throughout your career. Um, and I think it's really important to focus on yourself, give yourself some good affirmations of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think it's really important to say, this is how I'm feeling, and rely on the people that have helped get you to where you're at right now to help you move through that point of where you're at. First of all, I think that you are doing an incredible job as a program director. I mean, I'm not in your program personally, but from the interview process, I think it went super smoothly and you carried yourself in a very professional, but also supportive and relatable way. And I really admire that. As a program director, how do you suggest preventing burnout in residency and prioritization of wellness? I think it's maybe approaching this twofold. One is that you have to have your own 
plan of what you're going to do for yourself. You know yourself the best. I think it's recognizing some early signs that you're feeling burnout and again, relying on the things that you love to get you out of that or to get you through that. Um, And I think it's also prioritizing that you want to be a part of a community that's going to be supportive of burnout and that they are addressing wellness and addressing burnout. I think that nowadays it's, it's very hard to find places that don't put some emphasis on wellness. And so I think that you know what's best for yourself and you know what is wellness to you. And so you want to find a community and you want to find a group of people that are going to be supportive in the same ways that you know have been uh, helpful to you in the past whenever you've gone through periods where you felt burnout. And so does a program have resources? Does a place have resources that they can implement right away whenever they can recognize that one of their colleagues has burnout? I think too, asking someone, have you ever recognized burnout in one of the residents or the students? And what have you done in that situation? I think that that's something that could be a very powerful question to ask, because then you you get a feel for how do different people handle this? How do different programs handle burnout? And then again, really making sure that you know yourself, you know what the signs are, don't ignore them, but also you want your colleagues and your close people, close family at at your program to be able to recognize that also, and then have an action plan as to what is going to happen once it's recognized. I think that that was beautifully said. And I never even thought about asking the program directly about, have you ever seen burnout in any of your, your residents or students or et cetera? I made sure that I put how I want to prioritize wellness in my personal statement. And that's how I address that as well as I asked certain questions like, what kind of wellness activities do you do? And to me, I had to decipher, okay, does this sound like they are doing this wellness activity to check a box or are they doing the wellness activity because they really care about the wellness of their residents? That was a really big red flag check to me for, for am I going to be happy in this program? Is this program a supportive environment that I can flourish in? Um, so I love that you addressed direct questions that you can ask. And I wouldn't be afraid to ask these kinds of questions. These programs are just as they are looking for maybe a good team member, a good student, et cetera. You are looking for a good fit and a good uh, supportive environment to be in. Alrighty. So this brings us to the final segment of my show, our final Rex, where we send you off with something our guest really loves that they would like to recommend to you. This can be a book, a movie, a game, a website, anything really medicine or non-medicine related. So is there anything, Dr. Blackco, that you really love that you want to share with the listeners? So this one, uh, this question, I, I wasn't really sure how to answer it because what I love uh, may be very different than from what other people love. So I figured that I would share one last tidbit of piece of advice, the, maybe the, the best advice that I was ever given. Um, and so what I would say is whatever you like to do. So this final Rex of all the things that I like to do, I like to be outside. I like to golf. I love my dog. I, I love uh, the water. I love music, whatever it is that you love the most outside of medicine. I really, really, really encourage everybody listening to this to not lose sight of these things, whether it's during medical school, whether it's uh, definitely as your transition from medical school to residency you need to build these things that you love, your own final recs, whether it's reading a novel that's not medically based, whatever it is, you have to build this into your schedule and you have to make it a priority early on. 
So it is very, very, very difficult six months, 12 months into a very busy residence here, busy medical school to then go back and try to refine these things that you love outside of medicine and build them in without them stressing you out. I think if you build it in, you're already going to be busy. If you're going to be busy, you might as well build in some busyness with things that you love to do outside of medicine at the same time. It's going to be a lot easier to sustain these things as time goes on. And you're not going to have to try to build them into an already packed schedule because I guarantee you that that love for what you have, it's not going to feel as passionate and as easy as what it should uh, because you're trying to force it into an already jam-packed schedule. So I guess my final rec uh, to everybody out there would be to make sure to build in the things that you love to do that make you who you are outside of medicine into your schedule early and often uh, because you're going to be busy either way. So you might as well be busy with both medical things and things that you love to do outside of medicine that make you who you are. Absolutely agree. You know, there's this really cliche saying that goes, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time to plant a tree is today. So I love that saying because it just goes to show that th these things that you know you should have been doing, say say it's yoga, say it's working out, say it's meditation, you know that you should have been doing all of these things and it can seem like a weight on your shoulders being like, oh my gosh, you know, I need, I know that I should be doing this thing, but I'm not. Well, then just start because there's no, there's no time like the now to just get started on these things, get your foot in the door and create a new habit going forward for the future because you never know what, what you're going to need on a bad day. So I keep reminding myself, okay, today's a good day. Maybe I don't need to practice mental health when I'm, you know, in a really good mental health state of mind, but I'm doing it in preparation of those bad days. I'm doing it so that, you know, when I'm a resident and I'm feeling a little bit burnt out, I can fall on these things that I've already practiced. Yes, completely agree with uh, your take on it also. And I think it's something that we probably don't focus on enough. Alrighty, guys. And as always, thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Instagram at dear.do.pod. You can visit my website, deardopod.com, for blog posts, guides, and you can anonymously ask all of your med school questions. But of course, you can always ask me personally on Instagram, send me a DM. Let me know who you want to see next week. We have really excited things coming up. I am interviewing Dr. Harrell next week. Again, he's going to give you all of the residency tips all of the third year clerkship tips. And then I am interviewing Dr. Gunnar Orcutt. He's a legend at my medical school, LMUDCOM. He did amazing in, in didactics. He did amazing during clinical clerkships. And he served as a mentor for me. And I think that it's the least that I can do for you guys. Perfect timing and of course, original music by Cologne, recording and production by yours truly, and I hope to see you here next time.